I'm Trevor, and welcome to Catching Up on Cinema. If you aren't familiar with the program, Catching Up on Cinema is a film analysis podcast wherein we introduce each other to films, expand our cinematic horizons, and, in essence, catch up on our cinema. So it is the month of November 2022, uh, which means is, of course, our No Nut November event month. Uh, essentially what this will entail is uh, we're going to be reviewing the subgenre of erotic thrillers, uh, more specifically er American erotic thrillers from the 1980s, uh, mostly through the 1990s. Uh, we may slip in a contemporary release or something uh, as we head towards the end of the month, but for the time being, 80s through 90s American erotic thrillers. Uh, you may have also noticed that it is, uh, once again, just me uh, on the mic here. Uh, Kyle had some real-life shit uh, come up very unexpectedly. Uh, so I'm going to try to get us through this. Uh, I will confess straight up, uh, this is probably going to be a very uh, dry, very boring episode. Um, I am currently uh, in the middle of house-sitting for my parents, as well as dog-sitting. Uh, so if the acoustics are kind of shitty, uh, it's because I am recording on a laptop in their kitchen uh, with a little seven-pound uh, Yorkie poo uh, sitting in my lap. Oh, by the way, um, I was unable to bring my mic stand with me, so I'm currently using a, uh, I think it's a whiskey glass or something, uh, as a mic stand. Uh, so apologies, again, if the sound quality is awful. But anyway, uh, I'm just going to get right to it. Uh, the film that we're going to be talking about, or at least I am going to be talking about today, uh, is a big one. Uh, it's one that I actually wish Kyle was uh, here to talk with me about because this movie is kind of a big deal uh, for people uh, of our relative age range. Uh, that would be Paul Verhoeven's Basic Instinct uh, from, I believe, the year 1992. Uh, now, the reason I say this movie is a big deal for people of our relative age range is because uh, as far as like the sleazier side of erotic thrillers go, uh, at least in terms of mainstream American cinema uh, from this era, from the 90s, um, post-Fatal Attraction era, essentially. Um, this is probably one of the more high-profile ones, and very similar to Fatal Attraction, it was also one of the more successful ones on top of that. Uh, and as a result, um, its its cultural footprint is massive. Um, I, I mentioned last week when we did talk about Fatal Attraction that uh, I came to be aware of this film uh, via our our family VHS uh, tape of Terminator 2 Judgment Day, um, which is, you know, funny enough, one of the first R-rated movies I ever saw. Um, certainly a light R as compared to this film's very, very hard R. <laughs> um, borderline NC-17 by the standards of the day, I'm sure. But um, one of the early trailers on that tape uh, was this film, Basic Instinct, and there's a very good reason for that, uh, chief among which being it's from the same production company, uh, Caralco or Carolco. I'm not positive how it's pronounced. I've always said Caralco. Um, but I'll, I'll never forget that trailer just because uh, it, it seemed like one of those like intense, naughty films that, you know, I saw I saw T2 on, on that VHS tape probably when I was, you know, in middle school like 10, 11, somewhere around there. So I, I was allowed to watch that movie, but I was most certainly not allowed to watch Basic Instinct at that point, nor had my balls fully dropped. <laughs> um, but I'll never forget that trailer just because it was really well cut together. 
Uh, it was li- it was really slickly produced. Um, and what's more, uh, there's actually a song from like that is included in the film. Uh, the trailer music that plays over that that particular trailer was a. Uh, I think the title of the song is "Blue" uh, by apparently a group uh, called Latour. Uh, and in fact, I'm listening to it right now. I have a lot of uh, nostalgia surrounded surrounding that piece of music just because I that's how my memory often works as I associate uh, sounds and images with whole memories and whatnot um, but yeah that's how I came to be aware of basic instinct little did I know um, how important uh, its filmmaker would become to me uh, in later years of my life uh, Paul Verhoeven is a he's a special talent in the film industry the, the crazy Dutchman uh, god damn it he knows how to make a fucking film um, say what you will about as a person, I know he could be abrasive. I know he could be pretty intense on the set. I know uh, there have been several disagreements documented w- between himself and like cast members and whatnot. Um, but I'll just say it right now. Um, I really love the guy's work. Um, <laughs> like it's kind of amazing. Like looking over just his his American filmography. Uh, that would be like from the mid '80s through. Uh, what the mid 2000s or so or or maybe even the year 2000 i think hollow man was his last like major american film it's kind of amazing how how many of those films came to be very special to me in some regard and it, and in many ways became you know formative pieces of filmmaking and art uh, for me as a person and and i'm sure many many other people out there paul verhoeven's the man um but yeah, uh, he directed Basic Instinct in 90, 1992. And I think the way I'm going to approach this is just, I'm going to take this very easy on myself. I, I am talking to myself uh, here, so bear with me. But I'm, I'm just going to go through cast and crew to start, and then just like basic broad strokes impressions of the film, or, or just things that are special about it or jump out at you, things like that. I'm not going to go beat for beat on this one. I just don't have the energy. Um, But I'll start with Paul Verhoeven. He's, of course, from the Netherlands, as I said. Uh, He was very, very successful in his home country, but then I believe Flesh and Blood may have been, like, his first, like... I mean, he had many, many international hits, like, uh, was it Soldat? Uh, Oranya or something. A Soldier of Orange was a big one. I know Turkish Delight was a really, really big hit for him uh, before he got to the States, but I'm just going to focus on his American filmography because I did take a minute to hype that up. So Flesh and Blood is a medieval uh, film starring, you know, the kind of the most bankable uh, Dutchman of, of his day. Uh, that would be uh, Rutger Hauer. Uh, Jerome Crabe, I think, is like the other big one that I I know of from that era. He's uh, the bad guy from the Dolph Lundgren Punisher and uh, the bad guy, funny enough, the bad guy from uh, um, The Fugitive, the Harrison Ford headline, The Fugitive film. Um, but then following that, uh, Robocop. Robocop is a, it's like one of my favorite films, top three probably of, of all time. Uh, there's so many layers to it. It's so incredibly shot and edited. Um, and that's one of the things about Paul Verhoeven's films is that just the raw filmmaking ability put on display, like the, I've, I've started to realize, well, not started, but like I've 
started to place more emphasis on the idea of quality storytelling and by extension filmmaking is often a process of information management. Um, it's, it's essentially feeding, supplying the audience with the information they need when they need it and holding back when you need to uh, for greater dramatic f effect. Um, and so many of Paul Verhoeven's films have this like, just like silky smooth rhythm to them where it's just like you just it just flow through them and you're never you're very seldom at a loss although i will point to basic instinct as being a film that is seemingly intentionally kind of obtuse um it's a little frustrating in that way especially when you when you compare it to other films in his filmography that as i said are such a breeze to to watch and, and navigate through um but robocop just like watch the first 10 minutes of it or 15 minutes of it. And you'll see what I mean. It's like, if you really put it under a magnifying glass, it's like, holy shit. Like we, so much information is conveyed so effortlessly, so quickly. Um, it's truly unbelievable. Plus it looks really nice uh, for a, a modestly budgeted film on top of that. And also quality performances all around. So clearly he has a thing for working with actors um, the next film is Total Recall uh, from 1990, and this would be um, this would be where uh, connections, revolutions uh, start to come into play because so much of the film industry is just that. It's about connections and, and who you know uh, and who, who your friends are and who you can get to do favors for you. Um, so Rob Bottin uh, worked on Robocop. Uh, constructing the Robocop suit and presumably the Meltman effect as well. Uh, poor Emil. Uh, <laughs> Emil was a piece of shit, but, uh, you know, that is one hell of a way to go. Um, Rob Bottin was, you know, a titan of the, the makeup effects industry. He's one of those guys that I don't know what he's up to these days or if he's even still alive. I'm, I'm not going to bother to check, but I do remember hearing that uh, he kind of intentionally like stepped away from the limelight because like the man the man was capable of some truly incredible things um but maybe it was a case of like his his work being too demanding or like affecting his quality of life or something because to get those kinds of results i, I would imagine you have to give quite a lot of yourself but i do remember reading somewhere that like he he kind of intentionally stepped away um but he came to work with Paul Verhoeven in RoboCop, um, as well as Total Recall, designing a lot of the makeup and prosthetic effects. And he's also credited uh, for working on Basic Instinct as well. Uh, for a, a select few moments in the film, I'm fairly certain. Um, but on top of that, Total Recall is the film that uh, brought Paul Verhoeven and Sharon Stone together uh, as you know, actress and director. Um, and it's kind of interesting how that works out because um, just like scanning the Wikipedia, I'll, I'll just read off a list of names here of people who were also up for the role of Catherine Trammell, um, Sharon Stone's character in Basic Instinct. So Michael Douglas, by this point, this is post-Fatal Attraction era Michael Douglas. As I said last week, uh, he was pretty much up to his ears uh, in erotic thrillers at this point, as far as I know, and would continue to do these sorts of films for several years to come. 
I believe Disclosure was two years later, so that's at least one more on his resume that I'm aware of at the moment. Um, but the story goes, um, this film, uh, Michael Douglas was looking to have another, you know, a a tier star uh, working opposite him uh, because he he had developed a reputation for doing these kinds of movies. And anytime you have this le- this level of racy material, and in particular, you know, full frontal nudity in in a American film. Remember, we're talking about American films with American standards. Uh, we're not talking European cinema where they do not give a fuck. <laughs> Trust me, girlfriend's Dutch heard all about it. It's just dicks everywhere dicks everywhere as far as i know that's my impression of most of europe it's just oh there's a lot of dicks around it's just people just walk around with their dicks out that's that's just normal not like america where we wear blue jeans in the bedroom god damn it no i'm not a prude uh, although the girlfriend would tell you otherwise <laughs> anyway the story goes uh, michael douglas uh, wanted an a-list uh, leading lady to work opposite him so his first pick was kim basinger um, who already uh, kind of was a, a working actress. She'd already done quite a lot. She was kind of a big fucking deal. Julia Roberts was also offered. Uh, Greta Scacchi uh, is not a household name, but um, when I when I glanced over her uh, her photo and her filmography, I think I think she was um, Penelope in uh, the TV film uh, the tv two-parter the miniseries of the odyssey starring my boy armand asante uh, i think that's her i could be wrong on that uh, meg ryan was also offered michelle pfeiffer gina davis kathleen turner um, who of course michael douglas had worked with previously in romancing the stone um, and i think jewel of the nile had come out as well kelly lynch uh, let me see if i can look up her photo uh, I vaguely recognize her face. Not not somebody I know. Ellen Barkin. Uh, she <laughs> she could probably could have had fun with this one. Um, and Demi Moore was also considered. Um, and funny enough, she would go on to work with Douglas two years later in Disclosure, which is not a very good erotic thriller. But as I said uh, last week, it it does get bonus points for uh, being shot, like actually shot uh, in my hometown of Seattle. Um, very. The reason I make that distinction is because if you're not aware, dear listener, um, very few films that, or television series for that matter, that take place in Seattle are actually shot in Seattle. Uh, I don't know the specifics, but if I had to guess, maybe the, maybe shooting in this town is not welcoming uh, to productions. Like it must be a hassle or something, uh, getting permits and whatnot. Might be expensive too. Uh, the the common joke is that. If it takes place in Seattle, it's filmed in Vancouver, B.C. Uh, that would be Canada. Um, but no, that Disclosure film from 1994 uh, actually is shot in, in essentially my backyard. So there's a lot of angles and a lot of locations. It's like, <laughs> I go there all the time. That's neat. Uh, you don't see that very often. At least I don't. I'm, like maybe you're from New York City or some shit or L.A. for that matter. Uh, with, you know, In which case you wouldn't be impressed at all by something like that. But... Um, the story goes, uh, Sharon Stone got the role and was not paid an exceptional amount of money, um, which is probably a hell of a get uh, for the production. Uh, and there might be a reason for that, but um, the story goes that on the strength of their working relationship, uh, Paul Verhoeven and Sharon Stone 
having met on Total Recall. Um, she was cast in the role. Uh, and at this point, I believe she'd only done a couple of, uh, she'd done like a handful of movies. Uh, just, I'm not, I'm not reading this. I'm just trying to remember. I think she did like, it was like King Solomon's Mines or something. I think she may have done a couple of them, but they were basically Indiana Jones knockoffs from the mid eighties from the Canon film group. Uh, there may have been two of those. I think so. King Solomon's Mines, I know for a fact is one of them. Um, and the other one that I remember is, uh, Above the Law, she plays Steven Seagal's wife, I think, and that was the late 80s, so that would have been before Basic Instinct. Um, and I think that's all I remember. But the point is, she was still, you know, nascent in her, her career as a as a, a screen actress, anyway. Um, so, like, this was a, a high-profile film for her. That um, The reason I emphasize the nudity aspect of things uh, is just because... It, it's very, very uncommon in especially mainstream American cinema. Again, you may you may be one of those Europeans out there who just walks around with your dick out and has no respect for blue jeans in the bedroom. So things like this would be totally foreign to you. This you know concept of actually wearing clothes, <laughs> but um, to to show to show as much skin as she does in this film as constantly as she does in this film is and was especially very, very rare uh, in mainstream American cinema. And I'm fairly certain that's why all of those high-caliber actresses turned this film down, is because it's a, it has the potential to make or break your, your career, honestly. And if you're already at the top of the heap, like if you're already uh, you know, putting asses in seats as a mainstream you know, top-tier actress, why take the risk of potentially being in a in a movie that's you know inflammatory to you know more prudish audiences out there or critics for that matter and you know isn't guaranteed uh, to make its money back or something so I'd, I, I would imagine that a lot of you know risk assessment was done by those parties and they're like i don't think so but for someone like that who's hungry and who's on the come up you know it it was it was a big risk, but it really worked out for her because she has gone on to have quite the career. Uh, she's a uh, quite the lady, as far as I know. Uh, she known to be somewhat difficult. Um, she could be. Uh, I know for a fact, like on the uh, the Electric Boogaloo, uh, the Canon Films documentary, uh, they they commented on her being a little uh, diva ish, um, and I, I have heard uh, on other sets that 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 was kind of confirmed. Uh, she fancied herself an intellectual and was very very vocal uh about it um and sometimes would come uh come into conflict with those around her <laughs> but uh she did go on to have a wonderful career and she did get to work with some truly tremendous directors beyond paul verhoeven so it it very much worked out um michael douglas Aury kind of went over last week with kyle so i'm i'm not going to bore myself and you by going over that uh, I will point out that uh, Gene Triplehorn is in here in a uh, important supporting role, and apparently this is her, her first screen role. Uh, I would not have guessed that. Um, she she does she acquits herself quite well. Um, I mostly knew her from uh, uh, the Firm. Uh, from I think that it, it had to have been like a year or two later. It couldn't have been that much longer after. But that's the John Grisham film uh, starring Tom Cruise. Um, and then also she's uh, the, the 
female lead in a water world which say what you will about that film i i, I actually would love to see a documentary about water world just because it's it's not a terrible film um but the press just ripped it apart and some of the stories from that set are absolutely incredible i mean that the, they used all of the steel in the hawaiian islands to build a floating set that they really should not have. And not only that, the floating set blew away. It was floating. It floated away from them because the wind blew their set away. So they lost days of shooting due to lo- literally losing their set. <laughs> oh, yeah. And also they uh, did a CGI post-processing on uh, Kevin Costner's hairline uh, for the underwater shots, uh, because, uh, he, he was the director of that film. I'm sure a lot of his own money was at stake as well. Uh, and you know, he had that Vegeta thing going on. He had a little bit of a widow's peak situation going on there. Uh, so he's like, Hey, you know, that Jurassic park movie had some pretty incredible computer effects. How about we use that technology to fix my hairline? And not only that, uh, these, uh, gills on my neck here behind my ears, uh, they look a little suspiciously like vaginas. Um, and, you know, we got a lot of Americans who are going to be going out to the cinema. A lot of, you know, a lot of Americans who have beliefs and moral codes and who are who wear blue jeans in the bedroom, goddammit. They probably don't want to look at vagina ears in their Waterworld film. Uh, so how about we use that dinosaur computer effects technology uh, to uh, airbrush those out, make them look, look slightly less like vaginas. <laughs> ah, wider world story concluded i i swear um and the other fun thing about watching a movie like basic instinct um is as i said i i came came into awareness of this film by by seeing it on like as a trailer on a vhs tape for a different super awesome movie t2 look it up um the cool thing about watching movies from from this era at least for me you know, for people of my relative age range, is that you you find yourself just like pointing at the screen and being like, I know him, I know her, I know him, I know her. Like it, all the character actors of the of the day, because you know, I watched a lot of TV and a lot of movies. You know, contempt like contemporary to this, uh, you just start to become aware of these names and faces. And now that I'm older um, and have a different appreciation for film and television and whatnot. I'm starting to like actually know these people's careers and and actually develop deeper layers of appreciation for them. So just like a couple of the other character actors in here is like one of the big ones. Um, in fact, these two both like uh, shared the screen. Well, they, I don't think they shared the screen, but they're involved in the same productions. We have Wayne Knight, uh, who most people know as either Dennis Nedry from Jurassic Park or Newman uh, from Seinfeld. And then we also have Daniel Von Bargen, uh, who was previously on Catching Up on Cinema in the form of our review of Lord of Illusions, uh, where she, where he plays a legitimately unsettling and creepy villain. Uh, not something this fella does all the time. Daniel Von Bargen was fucking Mr. Kruger from Seinfeld. Uh, he was George's apathetic boss. Uh, and we also have Stephen Tobolowski, who is always welcome. Uh, he's playing a doctor here. Uh, it's pretty common for him to play like therapists and whatnot. Stephen Tobolowsky's great. Um, and it, the list goes on and on. It's like, oh yeah, um, James Rebhorn, who I did not know his name. Um, I think he was the dad from Blank Check. 
as well as the Secretary of Defense from Independence Day. Uh, so it was always fun seeing him. He also has a small role, a uh, very important role. Uh, he's the, I think, the automobile expert. Um, and uh, he's like the expert witness in My Cousin Finney. So it's like this is the experience of going back and watching these, quote, nostalgic films uh, for myself. But uh, one other person of note that I need to point out in regards to the production of Basic Instinct. Uh, there's a there's a couple more, so bear with me. We we very well may not talk about this movie. I think I'm just taking a, a walk down memory road and just seeing how many synapses I can fire before I have a fucking stroke live on the air. Um, one of the other big personalities that we really need to talk about, um, that again, I really wish Kyle was here for me to talk at, because uh, presumably that's how this would go down, is uh, the writer, Joe Esterhaus. Uh, so Joe Esterhaus, um, and I was looking forward uh, to bringing this fella up uh, when Kyle and I were to be talking about this film. I don't know very much about him other than the broadest of strokes, but as far as I know, he, he worked for Rolling Stone as a journalist, um, but then he went on through the 80s and 90s to have an incredible, an incredible screenwriting career. And when I use the word incredible, I'm referencing the the money that he earned, like the, the, the lump sum, the, the amount of money he received for the purchase of these screenplays. Because I don't know that he's actually a good writer. <laughs> um, I don't I don't think of Basic Instinct as being a brilliant piece of writing. Um but somehow uh, this guy this guy was what Hollywood was buying. He was writing what Hollywood was buying. Um, and I think it really comes back. Like, I, I know I'm making a running gag out of the, the fucking Levi's in the bedroom thing, but I really do think that's the case. Like, that is why uh, he made so much fucking money. Like, we're talking millions upon millions of dollars. Like, I, I can't confirm, but I seem to remember hearing that I think it was Showgirls, maybe Basic Instinct. One of these was was like a record-setting figure uh, for the payout to for the purchase of a script from a studio. Um, and to tie it all up, I I, I have this theory that you know the the, the puritanical streak um, in American culture also leads to you know people also leads to things like this you know these less than puritanical i uh, like pieces of art and and entertainment become all the more enticing uh to to a nation that hold like in general like holds those those values in in high regard so you have all these naughty quote naughty films that in, involve eroticism and violence and and drug use and all that kind of stuff that Everybody, everybody shitting on them in public, like talking about how awful they are and how it's like, oh, this, this is the entertainment of degenerates and whatnot. It's like, motherfucker, these movies are making like Fatal Attraction made like three hundred million dollars on on like peanuts. Basic Instinct, same fucking deal. These movies made a fuck ton of money. So the point is, like, like there may be you know people in the population that are talking about how how unvaluable these things are 
but there's clearly some interest just based on the people like the amount of people who are going out to pay good money to see these things um so joe esterhaus i don't know him i don't know very much about him but his name is he just he has a reputation and i'm just going to look over his filmography right here and point out that uh he wrote basic instinct made three million dollars off of it apparently uh he wrote sliver uh which is not a good film uh, i think that might be a de palma film uh no philip noise i'm sorry it it's it's de palma-esque uh, sliver is not good um, but it's also an erotic thriller and also stars sharon stone um, as well as billy baldwin and tom berenger i remember watching that on a whim a few years ago and i was like what is this um, then i read into it a little bit and apparently uh the mpaa had a lot of issues with that film and they had to like rush uh, to completely restructure it and even the identity of the it is like a uh, pseudo giallo uh, in that there is like a, a murder mystery on top of the erotic thrills and whatnot apparently the identity of the killer also had to be changed amidst all the like that whole sea of changes that had to be done to that film so it limped into the theaters is is the way i understand it it was a it was totally crippled by the time it got there Nothing about it suggested that it would, would have been good anyway. Um, but I will point out that that does seem to be an ongoing thing with Joe Estershaus's writing. It does seem like um, either studio or director uh, liked, don't like to, uh, but often come into conflict with him. And a lot of arguments are had uh, as to what material stays and what goes. Um, Showgirls uh, is one of the big ones. Uh, Paul Verhoeven, I uh, also directed showgirls uh it is a <laughs> it's not a mess i i can't call showgirls a mess because as i said paul verhoeven is generally a very tidy director uh, he knows how to make a fucking film so it it is trashy uh it is silly it is straight up silly um but it's very enjoyable if you watch showgirls in, in the right atmosphere it is it is unbelievably entertaining um but as far as i know showgirls also sold for millions and millions of dollars the screenplay did um go figure a, a dumb fucking movie called showgirls sells for millions of dollars he also wrote jade uh, from 1995 same year in fact also made over a million dollars for that one uh, that's a movie i haven't seen but i think kyle was hinting that that might be on the docket this month uh point is uh joe esterhaus was doing the these kinds of films uh around this time and um i would not be surprised at all if a combination of you know fearing for their reputations and whatnot but and also the outright cost uh to carlco of purchasing the screenplay may have also been what got sharon stone in there is like she's not a household name yet we can afford to pay her considerably less than we would like a Julia Roberts or something. And oh yeah, we also blew like, I don't know, a huge chunk of our budget on just getting the papers, like just getting the words uh, to work from. Um, I'm just going to keep rolling through names, man. Like th that's what this is going to be. I'm not going to talk about this movie at all. <laughs> uh, Jan de Bont, uh, also from the Netherlands, uh, cinematographer turned filmmaker, 
a huge impact on 90s cinema. Um, Speed, ever heard of it? Twister, ever heard of it? Um, I think he also did The Haunting, maybe. Um, Jan de Bont and, and Paul Verhoeven, as far as I know, worked together many, many times. Um, but this was before Jan de Bont was a filmmaker. He was strictly a cinematographer. Um, one of the highest compliments I can pay this film is, as I said, the script is seemingly intentionally just just circuitous and kind of filled with all sorts of fuckery to frustrate you. Um but the cinematography and the editing are rock solid. Uh, the cinematography in particular, the way this movie looks is stunning at times. Uh, the camera just glides around it perfectly. The, the choreography of, of the figures, the blocking of the scenes is, is wonderful. Um, there's a lot of walk and talks and a lot of like stairwell chats and stuff in this film that, that would you would have to imagine could be arduous to navigate through um as an editor and a cinematographer um but damn they they capture it so beautifully and on top of that there's a lot of motifs uh recurring motifs in the film that actually had me thinking of fatal attraction a little bit one of which being water uh there's a lot of like rain and water imagery to complement the mood in certain scenes like really basic film language stuff where it's like somebody's depressed we may as well have it be raining outside um but the really big one uh is it, it's like an old school film noir trick such that like I, I wouldn't care to see it but i wouldn't be surprised at all if this film actually would play very well in a in grayscale in black and white um, because there's a lot of instances of shadows being obscured or projected um, in the form of like Venetian blinds, like light flowing through Venetian blinds and being obscured by the blinds. And what's more, the, the iconic interrogation sequence, the uh, ceiling tiles in that room have like a, it's not a honeycomb pattern, but it's like a series of dots. Like It's like a grating pattern uh, on the ceiling that casts these, strange dotted shadows down on the figures faces and if you were to view this film in grayscale i bet those shadows would be absolutely delightful to look at like you could just you could just swim in those shadows they're they're wonderful really beautifully shot film and what's more there's there's a handful of action beats there's also a handful of uh like kill sequences or like or like scenes of bloody violence that paul verhoeven has a knack for framing those uh, and they're they're shot very very well um, and also they involve somewhat complex effects work that again you you need to coordinate with your technicians and your your lighting and your editor in order to capture the footage that you need to make those really really work um in terms of like makeup effects uh, from rob botin as i said like the big one is in the opening of the film um when uh, our fellow johnny uh, the rock star is um being fuck killed <laughs> um he uh Paul Verhoeven always goes the extra mile, and he does seem to share this in common with uh, Guillermo del Toro. Um, Guillermo del Toro, I've always maintained, like I, I haven't seen all of his films, but he does have a, he seems to have a thing about mutilation, where like the violence in his films is seldom ordinary. Like when violent things happen to people in his films, it usually results in some form of like mutilation, um, in particular like facial scarring. Or, or facial trauma of some sort. Like in Crimson Peak, there's a bit where uh, 
Tom Hiddleston gets stabbed in like the sinus cavity. Um, I seem to remember Pan's Labyrinth having some face trauma as well. Um, stuff like that where it's like, you know, when when you think of like a basic stabbing or something in like a Scream movie or like a Halloween movie or something, it's like you think like center mass or you think throat or something. But like Paul Verhoeven and, and Guillermo del Toro, it's like, no, you know, like sometimes you sometimes maybe you're aiming for those things, like you're aiming for a carotid or something. But hey, you know, it's a moving target. Maybe they move a little bit and they get stabbed in the fucking cheek, or they get stabbed at, like maybe the knife bounces off their forehead or something. Like it adds an element of severity and realism um, that I don't know. It's it's a weird thing. I don't know. I'm probably putting more thought into it than either of they or either of them do, but I appreciate it. Um, but anyway, in this, in this case, uh, Johnny is getting, again, fuck killed. Um, he's having a good time until it goes bad. I'll just, I mean, he may even still be having fun for a little bit when it's going bad. Who knows? But he is a rock star after all. Um, but, uh, he gets stabbed with an ice pick and the first hit is in the throat. It's like, oh, that, that'll kill you. That'll do it. Um, and then like another one goes into the chest. Uh, but then we just when we think it's like oh we're gonna cut away now it's like oh that, that'll he's he's dead already like that that'll do it we get this one shot where you know rob Botin was just like oh man i just stayed up like five nights in a row just so i could get this just right so we could fuck this guy's face with this ice pick just perfect paul i did it for you paul i did it for the robocop and i did it for you paul so this ice pick goes through like just below the eye socket and through the nose at a at like a diagonal (laughs) so we get this lovely rob botin sculpted head and we know he's wonderful at sculpting heads because we've seen total recall we've seen robocop and the thing and whatnot and we see this ice picture go at this really bizarre angle that's like you know when you think about if you're just in the moment and you're just like hacking away just like jamming that 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 bladed in, well not bladed but that pointy instrument down and also you're still he's still in you like he he is he is not he has not exited the woman yet she like it stands to reason it's like if he's thrashing around and stuff it's like you know that ice pick is gonna go some weird places and sure enough it's like he he probably zigged when he should have zagged because it went <laughs> went into his fucking face um, and then what's more, we get a couple more stabs before we cut away. And it's like, yikes, that was tasty. I I love it. <laughs> more, please. And we do get at least one more stabbing in the film. Uh, and it's great. Uh, it's more basic, um, but it's a Paul Verhoeven film. So you better fucking believe it's very, very uh, violent, very bloody. Um, one thing that's important to know about Paul Verhoeven is that the man lived through World War II. Um, you know, the World War II... It, it, it touched the Netherlands as well. Um, he has a he has a pretty awesome movie um, called a uh, Black Book or uh, was it Zwart Zwartbook um, in in the native I think it's I forget the spoken language in the film I think it's both German and and Dutch. Um, I watched that movie a while back like uh, around the time I started dating the girlfriend because I was like hey you know <laughs> I'm I'm gonna try to relate by watching some Paul Verhoeven cinema. <laughs> Yeah, I know. I made an effort. Um but that that movie is about um the the Nazi efforts uh in the Netherlands, the you know, the Nazi wrongdoings and what in the Netherlands. And it's it's pretty raunchy, it's pretty it's 
it is a little bit of a B movie in some ways, but it's really it's really well executed. It has an intensity to it that's very uh, laudable, but um, also very very violent in memory serves. Um, but yeah, the point is the man lived through World War II, and I want to say that that's like I know in this in this country in particular a lot of the violence in particular, but also the nudity in his films um, was you know, decried by, by local audiences, by local critics and whatnot. But, um, I want to say that's like, in some ways, like a, a, a way of purging your demons, I guess. Like it, it's a, it's a way of addressing, you know, whatever deep seated trauma might be there. It's like, I'm sure he saw some awful fucking shit and, you know, to see violence enacted in film is probably like, it's probably almost laughable to him because it, it, because like, why not blow it out of proportion? It's like, it's all fake. Like it, it, it's all a show. Uh, so in some ways, like making light of it probably takes away some of, some of its power. Um, I have to guess that that that's probably a little part of what's at work. All of his movies are, are very, very deeply layered, uh, such that I could be speaking directly out my ass, but, um, I wouldn't be surprised if that had something to do with it. Um, but yeah, uh, one last person, I guess I can talk about, um, and we are probably winding down here, um, is a Jerry fucking Goldsmith. Uh, so Jerry Goldsmith uh, is a film composer that has unfortunately passed away. Um, and the reason I emphasize the unfortunately is because I really love Jerry Goldsmith's sound. Um, when I think of film composers that I that I miss that I feel an absence when I think of them it's it's Jerry Goldsmith uh, because he has a he has such a distinct sound or at least he had such a distinct sound um, and it was it was highly versatile on top of that like he, he could do pretty much any any type of film that you asked him to do more than likely he'd bring five synthesizers to it just because that that was seemingly one of his favorite tools um i think it contributes very much uh to many of his films in fact he also scored um total recall which i reviewed with my brother uh matt uh several years ago on catching up on cinema and the score for total recall is awesome and also the score for basic instinct is awesome, but I will caveat that by saying um, it's it's a little repetitive. Um, it there are several recurring motifs in it, uh, in particular surrounding the Catherine Trammell character, um, who is in quite a lot of this movie. Um, that do get a little they 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 lose their charm a little bit just because they're overdone to a certain extent. Um, but the but the actual composition, the actual melodies present in the film are lovely. They're very very nice. Uh, I just wish maybe it was more varied, or maybe maybe they could have pulled it back a little bit. Let let the the movie be more of a visual experience from time to time because there's this like kind of like ethereal like pondering tune um, that that plays seemingly whenever anyone's suspicious of Catherine Trammell in this movie. And as I said, that that concept makes up about ninety five percent of the screen time in the film. So any any time anybody's suspicious, 
we get this this little tune that plays it's like you know this is getting a little old guys <laughs> it gets a little repetitious but i just wanted to you know tip my cap to the man uh jerry goldsmith you know give him a salute uh because he is missed um i i really wish we had contemporary films with his sound uh, because the man knew knew his way around crafting themes um, and that's like one of the big things I miss in contemporary, like mainstream cinema in particular. Is, is it's hard for me to find like those earworms, those, those lovely themes that you never ever get tired of hearing. Um, but he he gave us so many of them, and uh, I would say this is a very very good score. It's just a little repetitive, but um, anyway, I guess this is a not going to be a review. Uh, this is just me talking about Basic Instinct. Um, because I'm running out of steam and I've had enough fun as it is. Uh, I will point out that apparently there's like a sequel uh, to this film. I don't know if it made theaters, but uh, it is called Basic Instinct 2, and it came out in 2006. Uh, It has some of the same producers, although Paul Verhoeven is not uh, involved in uh, in the film at all, as far as I know. Uh, and Sharon Stone returns. Uh, holy shit! <laughs> um, yeah, if I was to compare this film to Fatal Attraction in terms of overall quality, I'd say I'd say it's roughly on par with it. Um, I did find myself. I've seen this movie a couple of times, not a whole lot, but I've seen it a couple of times. Most recent rewatch, I found myself a little annoyed by the film uh, in its like last not act but like almost its last third honestly just because it it starts to become a proper detective story where the the erotic portion of the thrills has already kind of crested it's actually kind of funny to watch this movie because i i uh well erotic thrillers in general because um i talked about this a little bit last week also um i i'm my media diet largely consists of action and martial arts films more specifically. Um, So to watch a movie like this, where it's explicitly advertised as an erotic thriller, um, it's, it's really interesting to see that the same structure applied to a a different subgenre. And what I'm getting at here is like, when you watch a martial art film, the martial arts are what you're paying for. It's like oftentimes in those films, the plot is secondary because a lot of the uh, production budget and time in particular is usually put towards crafting those sequences as opposed to, you know, tidy, tidying up the script and, you know, getting the lighting just perfect or something like that. It's like, no, we got to get, we got to get our stars. Like we got to get them healthy. We got to get them strong and we got to get them, several several days on the set where they can just lay into each other and give us some you know martial arts magic on film um (laughs) lay into um so in in an erotic thriller structures like writing is probably a lot more important but the the big payoff moments like the reason you're paying your ticket is because you want to see those blue jeans come off so like when when the midpoint of the movie happens and it's like you know in Indiana Jones this would probably be around the time when he's getting on that truck or something. In this film in Basic Instinct it's when our stars bang. It's like, "Oh wow. 
that's so funny to think of that where it's like instead of like seeing john claude van damme do his his leaping roundhouse kick or something it's like no motherfucker we're paying to see dick <laughs> we're paying to, we're paying to see people hop into bed and as such we need to deliver on that front not quite as intensely as like a slasher film where it's like we need to see boobs and and dick every 10 minutes or something it's like no we need to have our climax our literal climax occur roughly at the spot you would expect that to happen in an action film so i was like oh <laughs> that's cute i hadn't thought about that before um but yeah uh i found myself like after that midpoint after michael douglas and sharon stone roll around in the sheets and that scene is quite explicit especially by the standards of the day um both of my man kyle he, he really he is not wrong michael douglas he really does have a way about him uh when the cameras are rolling i don't know what he was like in his personal life the man did bag Catherine zeta jones so i have to imagine it's probably this is probably a pretty decent reflection of the man's skills and more importantly intensity uh because yeah uh, he does some stuff that you don't get to see in american films in american mainstream films all the time uh, the scene with Gene Triplehorn, on the other hand, that was a little uncomfortable. Uh, that was that was not okay, uh, especially in 2022. Uh, it's like, yeah, okay, uh, both performers, you know, they they're giving it to us, uh, us the audience. We're we're getting a lot out of this, but um, not okay. <laughs> um, times have changed. Uh, absolutely not okay. Um, well performed, but not okay. Um, but yeah, Michael Douglas is he's fucking stud, man. <laughs> like he 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 knows a thing or two about a thing or two. Um especially on the female form. Um but yeah, uh, after that point in the film, uh and this film is a detective story. It's a murder mystery from from real to real. It's a it's a murder mystery. Up until that midway point, it's like very casually a murder mystery, uh, but then something, the energy shifts, and it's like, oh, fuck. We actually have to make an effort to pay off that mystery. And so the movie starts trending more towards that aspect of storytelling, where it's like, it's less about the, you know, the, the dangerous flirtation between, you know, our, our protagonist character and, and Sharon Stone. Um, after they've, you know, banged, it's like okay well i guess he has to be a detective now and the detective work while interesting reaches a certain point where it gets to be cartoonish and clunky and silly almost seemingly deliberately so because i swear like the last fourth of this movie or so is just michael douglas driving back and forth and like saying oh such and such person told me this and they're like oh that's wrong. You should go talk to this person. He's like, oh, I'm going to go talk to that person. Hey, such and such person said this. And they're like, oh, no, you totally misunderstood. You got to go talk to this person. So it's it's like him just driving back and forth across San Francisco, interviewing people, being con- being told conflicting narratives, and just being fucking frustrating, much like I was when I was watching him do it. <laughs> I will say I, I know Roger Ebert. I think he... I think he hated this film. Uh, it, that tends to be a, the case with a lot of movies that we review on Catching Up on Cinema. I think Roger Ebert hated this movie. I do remember watching his review of it, and in particular, he 
he took a lot of issue with the conclusion of the film, which I know, I, I guess you could compare it maybe to The Departed or something, where the last shot in the film is, is a little ham-fisted. It's like, it's a little too explicit, where it's like, oh, come on, I'm not, I'm not a fucking idiot, come on. Uh, I, I don't mind it that much in The Departed, and I didn't mind it much here. I thought the movie ended quite well. Um, it it pays off fine. Um, it's it's interesting the way the film concludes actually, where there, there's like a, a decent several minute stretch of the film where it's like all the explanations are being given out, and it's you know it's it's super obvious that's like you know nothing's this tidy. There's no way that this this movie that's been like jerking us around with this detective story this frustrating detective story for all of its runtime. There's no way that things could line up this, this perfectly in this kind of film. And sure enough, it's like, you know, it, obviously that isn't how it turned out. Um, I, I could see, I can see Roger Ebert's point about how it's like, you know, I didn't need that because I'm, I'm not an idiot. Don't, don't talk to me like I'm a five-year-old, but you know, for me, I didn't mind it. Um, it's a nice little, you know, occasionally melodramatic erotic thriller. Uh, very, very big emphasis on the erotic. Um, thrills are there for sure, although occasionally there's a few too minutes between, a uh, few too many scenes and a few too minutes in between thrills. I would have appreciated slightly more balance. So on the whole, it's like a slightly more uneven experience than Fatal Attraction, um, but it has its merits for sure. Uh, and on top of that, it gets a lot of nostalgia points from me in particular, just because, like I said, I became aware of this film when I was very, very young. And I kind of, you know, pegged it as like one of those films. that's like, you know, I'm going to get to that someday and it's probably going to be good. And sure enough, whenever I did get to it, I can't remember when I actually saw it for the first time. It was good. Um, so, yeah, uh, Basic Instinct by Paul Verhoeven uh, from 1992. Uh, starring our boy Michael Douglas again, um, and Sharon Stone as well. Uh, I'm sorry this didn't actually turn into an actual review uh, for the film, but as I said, I've got a dog in my lap. Uh, I'm recording in a kitchen on a laptop, uh, and this is just how it's how this one ended up. But uh, thanks for listening. I, I really appreciate it. Hopefully you had fun. I, I know I had some fun, although I'm very... I'm so very tired, Stephen. I'm just so very tired, Stephen. Um, with that being said, uh, this has been uh, week two in our No Nut November event month here at Catching Up on Cinema. So uh, in the meantime, folks at home, if you'd like to catch up on any of our other Catching Up on Cinema content, you can find all of that collected on our website at catchinguponcinema.com. Uh, you can also find us on the social medias in the form of the Instagram at catchinguponcinema as well as the Twitter, at Catching Cinema. So feel free to hit me up at either of those. Uh, and the podcast is available on pretty much every platform you can imagine, including BitCade. So fucking Google it. And that being said, thanks so much for listening. Thank you so much for bearing with me. Uh, and we will catch you next time. <laughs>